Welcome, welcome, welcome to the bookcase. I am Kate Gibson. Yeah, you used to get on my case when I would do more <laughs> than one welcome, and now you're into it as well. Well, give me give me a way to express enthusiasm for our listeners without saying welcome multiple times. I will take suggestions from people who want to write a review. If they want to suggest how I can welcome people without saying it multiple <laughs> times and still show equal enthusiasm, I'm I'm all into it. Okay. All right. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. We have today, I'm Charlie Gibson, by the way, that's sort of irrelevant at this point, and I welcome you too. Today we have an author, he is what they call a television presenter, or has been in London. He's English. In this mid-50s, he's just decided, okay, wouldn't it be fun to write some books? And he did, and they've been extraordinarily successful, both in the UK and in the United States. Uh, Richard Osmond is his name, and the books are The Thursday Murder Club, and they are just fun. This is not, I, he would never make any claims this is great literature. They're just fun, and it's about a group of elderly people who meet on Thursdays and decide, wouldn't it be fun to solve murders, old cases? And they do. And the books are, as I say, just enjoyable reads. The Thursday Murder Club, The Man Who Died Twice, and the new one that is just out, of the bullet that missed. There's this great moment in The West Wing. I'm a huge fan of The West Wing. And Oliver Platt's character at one point turns around and says to a character, you know, CJ, in my whole life, I've never found anything charming. I remember thinking when I heard that line, I'm like, oh, brother, that's me. I don't like being charmed. I always feel like I'm being manipulated. These books charm the hell out of me. Every page charms the hell out of me. And I love mystery stories where the detective is underestimated. There's a long literary tradition, I think, and pop culture tradition of detectives being underestimated. Miss Marple, Hercule Poirot, Columbo. I love it when everybody thinks the detective is doddering or stupid and it turns out he or she is smarter than everybody in the room. And that's sort of what these books are. This is also a book, I think, where the detectives stay with you long beyond the mystery. And again, that's your Marples, your Poirots, your Holmes, your Bosch, your Sam Spades. I don't remember a lot of those books, but I very much remember those characters and those names. And I think that's the sign of a really great mystery. I love Ibrahim and Elizabeth and Stephen and Ron and Joyce and Donna and Chris and Bogdan. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning. And I remember all those names. Well, now, hold on. First of all, the Thursday Murder Club isn't all that big. No, it's just four people. Ron, yes. Ibrahim, Elizabeth, Joyce. They all have different backgrounds. Some of the people that Katie mentioned are sort of peripheral to the story, although Stephen is an older person who is married to Elizabeth and he has dementia. But other than that, the four who are in the Thursday Murder Club, all septuagenarians, they've got all their marbles. They're just delightful, each one of them. And each one of them brings a different outlook and a different discipline to the murder cases that they're trying to solve. Ibrahim is an ex-psychiatrist. Elizabeth is ex-MI6. Joyce was a nurse. Ron was a labor organizer, so he's the muscle of the group. They each sort of have different talents that they bring to the group. But one thing I want to say before this conversation, which I think is really important, these books are really charming, but in no way does Richard Osman patronize his characters. He does not make them cute. And if he makes them cute, it's only to fool the bad guy. And I really appreciate that because he could have easily crossed the line into, aren't these older folks solving mysteries just adorable? And he doesn't. And yet they are very charming. I'm not quite sure how he does it, but I guess that's the sign of talent. I love these books. 
the antecedents, as Kate mentioned, I think he owes a large debt of gratitude to uh, Miss Marple and Murder, She Wrote, Angela Lansbury. I think he also owes a great debt of gratitude to Columbo. He mentions it actually in the rapid fire. These are just wonderful characters. They are. Very enjoyable books. And he's enjoyable to talk to. Our conversation with Richard Osman. Richard Osman, a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. And maybe even we're in the jigsaw room, which is something that we will we will explain in time. But you do seem to have a Midas touch. What you do seems to turn golden. Very successful TV career. And then I'm sort of fascinated by this. In your mid-50s, you write a mystery, a novel that's incredibly successful, a sequel, incredibly successful, and now a third Thursday Murder Club, just about to be published. For those who haven't read one of the two that are published so far, give me the elevator pitch. I will do. Firstly, thank you so much for having me on. What a pleasure to meet you both. Yeah, the Thursday Murder Club is set. My mum lives in a retirement community in the south of England, and it's an amazing place. You have to be over 70 to live there. And I would go down and visit all the time. Very beautiful, very peaceful. You know, there's still lakes, there's woodland, there's grassland all over the place. It's like a beautiful English village. And like anybody English, when I'm there, I sort of think this is so peaceful. Wouldn't it be the perfect place for a murder? (laughs) rather than commit one which we mustn't do when i was down there i started talking to everyone there everyone over 70 as i say all done really interesting things with their lives all had this sort of wisdom sort of accrued over a lifetime and i thought well if there was a murder there i bet you lot would solve it and that's where the thursday murder club comes from it's four people all of whom live in a retirement community very different backgrounds one was a nurse one was a psychiatrist one was a trade union official a late labor activist and one was a former spy, and the four of them meet up once a week to look over old unsolved police cases, and then suddenly there's a real murder in their community, and they have to solve them. So that's the starting point, and as you say, three books in now, and it shows no sign of stopping, which is lovely. Well, there's four, <laughs> the four characters are all septuagenarians, and, and my favorite line, I saw somebody had written, these are mysteries you can sink your dentures into. <laughs> I, I thought I thought that was perfect. But what got you to envision these four? You gave me a thumbnail description of each mm. of them, but where did the idea come from of making them so differently and distinct? Well, what I wanted, you know, what, what I love, I love film and in books, I love a gang. You know, we all love gangs. And in gangs, everyone's got to have different skills. And in this book, we've got two working class people. One was a nurse, one was a labor activist. We've got two middle class people, the psychiatrist and the spy. And the beauty of it is they can all come at any problem from a different angle. So, you know, I like to write short chapters. I like the action to keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. And whatever happens, whatever I throw at them, and I throw an awful lot, one of them will always have the solution. They will always disagree with each other, but they've always got each other's backs, and one of them will find the way out of any trouble. And so writing for a gang, I mean, listen, it's lovely to have Miss Marple or Hercule Poirot solving cases, but to have this gang, to have four different people, four different brains, all on the same case, is such a treat. The books are quite apart from being a mystery, that they're sort of about the power of friendship, and they're about making new friends as you get older as well, and having new adventures as you get older. So I just love throwing four people together who would never have met if they hadn't moved to this place, and suddenly they've got a common goal, which is solving a murder or trying to avoid being murdered. It seems to work as an engine for a crime novel. That's where it seems to work. I'm interested. You go between the third person perspective and the Mm. first person perspective, but the only person who gets to say I is Joyce. Why did you decide Joyce? Why not Elizabeth? Why not Ibrahim? Why not Ron? 
Well, she's an incre- she's she, an incredible she, flirt. That's why he did it. <laughs> <laughs> she certainly is. I'll give it, I mean, literally, even in this new book, she's still at it. I think because she's the one that probably is closest to my voice. If I'm in a knot with the plot, you know, if, if I've, got, I've got a bit of writer's block, I'll sit down on, and me and Joyce will write a diary entry together. I find that as a 78-year-old woman, I find it very easy to channel. And I'll sit down and it'll flow out. And she can talk about what's on television. She can talk about what she's bought in the shops. And then she can drop in a clue. But, you know, so she can sort of do anything. So for me, she's the closest to my voice, I think, in the book. And so she's the one that gets the diary entries. Your books are sort of this wonderful mix of... You need this mix, I think, of respect for getting older. There's a sense of warmth so the reader feels safe. And then there's this great humor that comes from your heroes being underestimated. Mm. How do you know to pull yourself back? Because it would be really easy, I think, to be, as I mentioned to you, I'm a cynical reader. I think it would be really easy to be too cute or too funny. How do you balance that? I think that's exactly right. And do you know what the interesting thing is? I set out deliberately to not write a funny book and not write a cute book. So any funniness and cuteness is coming from the characters and coming from what they naturally do. I am so desperately trying not to write jokes uh, <laughs> and not to write punchlines. Uh, so the characters are making me laugh, but I never want the reader to kind of go, oh, the writer's trying to make me laugh here, you know, because it takes you out of a story. And in terms of the cuteness, I mean, that's the thing, writing about people in their 70s, you could say, oh, haven't they done well? Aren't they great? And of course, people in their 70s are identical to people in their 50s and people in their 30s. Just their knees are not as good. And that's about it. Our brains, Charlie, listen, you'll back me up on this. Our brains don't change, right? What we want, what we desire, just our essential spirit, it never changes. Well, I, I yes, I agree with that, except that I do have to take notes on occasion as to what I've just <laughs> read. And I do sometimes walk into a room and forget why I went in there. But yes, for the most part, I think that's true. But Kate does raise an interesting point, which is that when you are writing about people of age, you do really have to guard against being patronizing. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And honestly, I've never treated them as old people. I give them the problems of old people. I give them infirmity. I give them grief. They're around death a lot. When I'm trying to talk about their essential spirits, which is the way they react to pressure, essentially, which is, you know, what happens in these books. I never think, what would an old person do? I think, what would Ron do? What Mm -hmm. would Elizabeth do? What would Joyce do? Mm -hmm. I'm never thinking, what would an old person do? Because I suspect they would do what I would do. And I hope it doesn't ever come across as patronizing. I mean, but I think the basic truth is I really like people and I love meeting new people and I love hearing new things from new people. And if you're interested and curious about people, I hope that comes across when you write them. You know, I'm not trying to think, how do I make this person likable? I just write a likable person, I think. Well, you do it very well. You, you, and you do have, interestingly enough, one character, not one of the four principles, one character with dementia, which mm-hmm. I think was important to do and which is written with great sensitivity because he may have dementia, but he plays a heck of a yeah. chess game. And you also have what I really can identify with as Joy struggles with Instagram, which I, <laughs> I, I loved because, oh, my Lord, do I struggle uh, with that kind of thing. Of the four principles, do you have a favorite? Yeah, but it sort of changes from day to day. I think the four of them are slightly the four quadrants of my own brain. I do love Joyce. Ron, I sort of love because Ron reminds me of my grandfather. Ron is a labor activist and he's sort of like a bull in a china shop. He sort of comes out fist swinging, really. That's his attitude towards things. So so I sort of love him. The beauty is, it's a traditional mystery. 
that's lovely. But to have a traditional mystery with four completely mismatched detectives, it sort of feels like that's what people are responding to. I think it's like the A-team solving crimes in a tiny English village. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like Agatha Christie wrote the A-team. Uh, and um, <laughs> who, who doesn't want to read that? <laughs> Which one of them is Mr. T? Which, <laughs> I, think, I think Ron is Mr. T. Okay, fair enough. Ron is Mr. But- T. What's interesting, too, is these characters spend, as I imagine people in that age group do, they spend a lot of time pondering their own morbidity. Mm. Is that something that you do? You seem to be making peace with death the same way your characters seem to be. Is that part of your journey as well? I think that's very perceptive. Uh, You know, obviously, you, you get to a stage in life where you recognize mortality, where you kind of go, oh, I'm I'm gonna die. Oh, yeah, you can intellectualize the fact that we're not here for a long time, we're here for a good time. But I think you reach an age, you know, I can see my mum in her 70s, where you don't just intellectualise it, you absolutely understand it. It's just part of every day. You know, there are ambulances at the village my mum lives in all the time. It's absolutely part of her life. And so her attitude towards it is very different. She's sort of passed a different Rubicon, I think. And I love writing about that, the understanding that, you know, I talk about in the first book, when they were younger, there were only so many hours in the day, so they were always busy. And now they're busy because there's only so many days left. And I think that was a powerful motivator for all of them and wanting to do new things and experiencing new things and understanding that the time to do that is limited. How can you write a successful mystery without at least one sex scene? (laughs) As I mentioned, (laughs) Joyce is a flirt and Elizabeth has a past, but there's no sex scene in any of these books. I am mindful of a friend of mine who, an age similar to yours, wrote his, tried his hand at a mystery novel, not very successfully. And the publisher sent it back to him and said, I'm sorry, you've got to put in a sex scene. So they did. And it it was very clunky, but you've done it without any. How did you do that? Charlie, I like how disappointed you sound. (laughs) Uh, Richard, I'm reading about these pensioners. I want want them to sleep with each other. Um, Do you know what? I sort of think, I don't really like reading them particularly, you know. I like there to be romance, and there's romance in the new book. I like there to be love and plenty of it. And there's a post-coital scene in The Bullet That Missed, the new book. There's enough to be going on with the murders and the drugs and the secret services and stuff without people, as we would say, banging each other every five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm interested, now that you've taken inspiration from your mother and her amazing living situation, is she an editor for you? Is she one of your first readers? Oh, God, no. That would be awful. (laughs) When I wrote the first one, she honestly, because, you know, I I got the inspiration from where she lived, she read the first one in an absolute cold panic, thinking she was (laughs) going to be sued by everyone else there. She thought I would have just liked stolen the characters from the village and just just written about them and they, they were going to sort of march on on, on our house with you know, a fortunate procession but uh no sometimes when i go and see her she'll say something and I, my eyes sort of glass over a bit she goes oh you've just you're just remembering that you put it in the book and i'm like yeah occasionally occasionally you'll say something but i think well do you know what i can't think of anyone else i've ever met who would say that so i'm, I'm going to give that to joyce I think were so relieved and all the people at that community were so relieved that they sort of come across as heroes that I've got carte blanche now with the whole village, which is great. I mentioned, by the way, at the beginning, I should explain the reference about the Jigsaw Room. The Thirsty mm. Murder Club meets in the Jigsaw Room. They drink tea, they eat lemon drizzle, 
And they're always worried about the next group that is supposed to come in and take over the jigsaw room. And they have to hurry because, my Lord, you don't want to hold up the, what is it, committee that's about to come in? I think it's French discussion. I think it's the French, and they label themselves Japanese opera, I think. Yes, the Thursday Motor Club books out the jigsaw room and says that it's for Japanese opera because they they don't (laughs) want anyone else to come in. So essentially, (laughs) they're thinking, what's the thing that we can say that no one's going to be interested in? Uh, so it means they keep the room to themselves. But that's the funny thing. When I was at my mum's community, they had all of these groups. You know, Tuesday, it's knit and matter. They call it Wednesday, it's art history. And that's when I thought of the name Thursday Murder Club. Second, I thought Thursday Murder Club. I thought, so I'm a TV guy, Charlie, like you. The second I thought, I thought, that's good. That's got, a, that's got a, a little something to it. But the place they live, and I hope it comes across in the books, they have such a lot. There's such a lot of politics. There's such a lot of gossiping. There's such a lot of drinking wine. But there's also everyone's got each other's backs. You know, mm-hmm. I try. Listen, I want to write a great Agatha Christie mystery as well. I want to make people laugh. But I want to get across this thing of good people, very different to each other, but who have got each other's backs. And that's the Thursday Murder Club. This has been optioned for the movies. Yeah. I can't believe there isn't a movie out yet. But I know that it's Steven Spielberg who bought them, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But got any idea who might play each of these characters? Tom no. Cruise. Tom Cruise is already of the age. But he looks about make, half that age. So. He looks about half that age. It would be weird, but I see him as Ibrahim or something. <laughs> no, That'd be no, great. No. Just a, a few silver streaks in his hair. Yeah, uh, exactly. Do it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Of course, everyone in Britain is desperate for, for just British actors to play the characters. But, you know, there's the Meryl Streeps of this world and the Diane Keatons of this world who you're not going to say no to them if they want to be in it. But essentially, as in most things, I leave that to Steven Spielberg. I think he's probably better at making films than me. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, when you're in this, I can't imagine him telling me who's going to be in it. Me going, Steve, come on, Steve. Let, let me tell you a couple <laughs> of things about filmmaking you don't understand. <laughs> uh, so essentially, who's going to be in it? Whoever Steven Spielberg wants to be in it is probably but the best that. But that's sort of unique because people in the industry, especially people who create content, have a tendency to feel very strongly about the ownership of that content. Mm. Whereas I've read that you are like, go make your film. Why? I mean, it just strikes me again. Most people in the industry are like my words, my art, my blah, blah, blah. I know. But listen, my honest job, I love books. I love reading. I always have done. I'm not Cormac McCarthy. I'm not Alice Munro. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to move literature in, in a different direction. What I want to do is entertain. I, that's what I re- I want people to read the book and at the end just go, I absolutely love that book. That just made the hours fly by. That's what I want to do. I want them to feel happier at the end of it. I want to feel like they were able to guess who did it or weren't able to guess who did it. Entertainment is what I like to do. And coming from the world of TV, you know, you surround yourself with people who are brilliant in their areas. That's the point. I mean, Charlie, you know, as a presenter, you know, there's the bits that you do better than everyone else. And then you're surrounded by all this incredible people who do the other stuff better than you do. And that, so that's what I'm used to. And my job is to write these books. And I love them. And I'm so proud of them. And so I'm going to keep doing that. Spielberg's job and his team is to make films. And honestly, it's going to take 18 months longer and be worse the more I interfere. It's the truth. You've got to let brilliant people just get on with things. And you've got to get out of their way. I'm not going to give you any spoilers away, but it's an interesting issue. You kill off a news presenter in book number three that's about to come out. And I didn't much appreciate that, Richard. Uh, You call them news presenters. We call them anchors. But you kill her off. And uh, right at the beginning, I'm not giving anything away. There's more to be heard about that. Do you struggle more with character 
or with plot? Um, I love them both. I love my basic rule with character is whoever comes into the book, even if they're in for a scene, I think, what would an actor think if they, if they were given this role? And is this role interesting? Is this put someone who could have a whole novel written about them? I love to bring in strong, different characters and give them interesting things to say. In terms of plot, I'm not one of those people who has kind of spider web diagrams all over the wall and post-it notes stuck everywhere. I don't really make notes. I just, I know what's going to happen in the end. I start at the beginning and then I usually know the next five scenes. But apart from that, I just, I'm often taken, uh, I'm taken by surprise. So to me, though, sort of character is plot in a funny kind of way. I mean, I can put a framework, you know, I can, as you say, I can murder a, a local news anchor at the beginning. But then the story has to spring out of the characters around that person. It has to be. So, yeah, I think from the second you choose your situation, I think character is plot from that moment on. I read there's only going to be four of these. No, 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 no. I, 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 God, if you said that in England, it'd be like NSYNC just split up. Um, Good. <laughs> I'm doing four. I'm going to write something different after the fourth one. So I'm going to take a little break. So I'm writing, I literally just started the fourth one, funnily enough, yesterday. Um, and so there's going to be four. Then, I'm, then I've got a different idea uh, in my head. But I'm, I'm going to go back to the Thursday Murder Club. I think I can't. I love them so much. And, and it would be, honestly, it would be, it'd be like Stephen King in Misery if I, uh, if I, if I decided to, uh, to kill one of them. Richard, a pleasure to talk to you. The books are wonderful. All the best. Thank you. I loved it. Thank you both so much. What fun. This was so much fun. Pleasure to talk to you both. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Richard Osmond, some rapid-fire questions. The most influential book in your life? Most influential book? Gosh, that's a very good question. Um, maybe something like, um, something like, um, maybe something like, and then there were none by Agatha Christie, because Christie, of course, super influential, and that's probably got the best plot of all time. It's got the best twist of all time. So that's the one that every crime writer, every mystery writer, is always trying to match. It's interesting because I love that book. I think it's the only book I've ever read where I don't like anybody in it. Mm. And yet I still love the book. Yeah, well, that's because they all die. Well, and they're all awful. Anyway, um, favorite favorite mystery writer? Favorite mystery writer. Um, I love Dennis Lehane, if we're going to talk America. I love Kate Atkinson's mysteries for a a UK writer. Mark Billingham, I love. There's so many. And obviously all the, the old school ones as well. But maybe Dennis Lehane. Favorite mystery TV show? Oh, that's a good one. Oh, listen, I'm sure everyone says this, but what else are you going to say? It has to be Columbo, doesn't it? <laughs> well, he could be living. He could be yeah. living in, in Cooper's Chase. He really could, couldn't he? He and Miss Marple are the original, I think, uh, underestimated detectives of their time. That's exactly it. That's the beauty. If you're disheveled or older or invisible in some way, and he's invisible because he wears a Mac and he's, you know, sort of shambling. 
if you're invisible, you make a head of a detective. <laughs> I, th- I think Katie, it actually goes further back. I would put Miss Marple as the mm. as the uh, as probably the first antecedent that sure. I can think of that would belong in Cooper's Chase. Favorite person to talk books with? Whoa, um, I love talking about books with my mom. Is that she, she reads like three books a week, and if it was up to her, every book would be written by Hilary Mantel and would be about the Tudor. <laughs> She's slumming it when she reads mine, but she's very nice about it. But yeah, she's always she's always got a new book on the go. And, you know, I'm always giving her books. And so I love talking about books with her. A revered book that you read that you wish you hadn't. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, listen, it's really hard to write a book, so I wouldn't want to. Um, I always find Dickens quite difficult. I love him. And, you know, there'll be passages where I'm like, this guy, how do you write like this? It's extraordinary. But then sort of 20 pages later, you're like, oh, are we still going? Um, so <laughs> I find Dickens hard. It's my fault, not his. It's me, not him. But I, I, I'd have to go with, with a bit of Dickens. I'm listening to David Copperfield right now. Right. And I like to listen to audiobooks while I'm doing chores. And yeah. the other day I was folding laundry and listening to David Copperfield. And I realized when I was finished, I had no idea where the hell I was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's it. I mean, listen. I was like, great. I have to go back like two chapters because I don't know what he's talking about anymore. Well, that's what happened because he used to get paid by the word. That's, a, that, <laughs> that's what happens. <laughs> when you're reading a book you don't like, do you finish it or do you put it down? No, I used to finish it, but again, it's that thing of there's only so many years left, aren't there? So if every book you finish is just knocked out another book you could be reading instead. So I'll, I'll give something 50 pages and then I'm off. Do you read your reviews? No, no. Ne- never did in TV. Because if you read the good ones, you have to read the bad ones. And the bad ones are all, always, listen, we're, the human beings are exactly the same, all of us. And th- those, those are the ones that impact. So I, I listen to people who talk to me in the street you know i i I, I chat an awful lot to readers but um yeah i'm not i'm not going to start reading reviews anytime soon and this is a question we stole from stephen colbert in five words what do you want the rest of your life to be write more books enjoy love love it thanks very much richard Our conversation with Richard Osman, I loved that conversation. I had fun having it. I get the sense that Richard is having fun. Although why somebody who's so wildly successful would turn around and go, you know what, I think I'm going to do the hardest thing in the world and write a book is somewhat beyond me. But I think it's wonderful that he put it together as a tribute to his mother. I think it's great that his mother was nervous when she was reading it, that he would expose her friends. I also think it was Richard that I think said mysteries boil down to who's smarter. And I love that these characters who, as I say, stay with you long after the book is over are smarter than almost everybody else and don't display that first and foremost. A little inside baseball. As we do these conversations, we pre-record them and we talk to uh, these authors maybe a week or whatever before we post the podcast. And we edit them because sometimes they wander a field or whatever, and the answers may not be pertinent. And we have to cut out all the dirty parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're about as PG rated as anything could possibly be. But uh, but in the Richard Os- in the Richard Osman interview or conversation, uh, we didn't cut anything out. He just was delightful to talk to, stream of consciousness etc etc. And of course, I have a softness in my heart for television presenters, as they're called in England or morning show hosts or whatever they might be. But Kate's right. He had a very successful career, has this very successful career, 
uh, doing television programs in the United Kingdom. And then he just decides to write these books just as kind of a lark and is very successful. And I really couldn't, you know, if you're, if you're looking for diversion, if you're looking for great literature, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 they're well-written, but it's just fun. Uh, the characters are fun. I don't like fun as an adjective, but they are. They're just fun. They are. They're fun and they're charming. Two adjectives that I think both you and I would hate <laughs> to have to have ourselves described by. How's Kate? She's fun and charming. Blah. And yet, again, I love these books. And I actually, I think they're touching. I think that in some ways, as I said to him, I think in some ways they're Richard's way of sort of dealing with mortality. I think he's wrapping his head around the fact that he's going to lose his mother. I think the characters struggle with that as well. The most poignant conversations for me are the conversations between Bogdan, who works at the home, and Stephen, who has Alzheimer's. And they meet and they play chess. And they have these conversations. And they're just beautiful. Like, I don't even want to go any further into that. They're just, they're, they're beautiful. And like I say, I don't like to be charmed. And yet I love these books. They're so charming. I can't wait for the fourth one to come out. It was nice to hear that he intends to go back to these characters because they are as delightful to him as they are to us other readers. Our independent bookstore this week is the 27th Letter, an interesting name for a bookstore. It's in Detroit. And we talked to Ann Pineda from the 27th Letter. This is a bookstore that almost went out of business before they even started. And they are in business because the neighborhood people around the bookstore responded to some tragedies that befell them before even they knew what the bookstore was going to be. It's a wonderful story. So we're talking to Aaron Pineda at 27th Letter Bookstore in Detroit. What is the 27th Letter? I don't mean the bookstore. I mean the letter itself. <laughs> what is it, Aaron? Yes, it is the ampersand or the and symbol, or it at least used to be considered the 27th letter of the alphabet. You have been through some very interesting experiences in your young life. First of all, when did you start this bookstore? So my spouse, Drew, and I, we started the store back in 2019. And what a wonderful time to be starting a bookstore with COVID all over you. <laughs> I was about to say good timing. <laughs> yes. Good timing. Good timing. We like to do things the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand you had a crisis that almost puts you out of business. Tell us what it was. Yeah, it's been an interesting first year of having a retail business. So most recently, we unfortunately were the victims of a cyber scam. And then prior to that, we had flooding last summer. And then also we had a car crash into our building. So we've got all the things that happened during the first year. And knock on wood, we're done. <laughs> Okay, wait a minute. I got to go back a little bit. There, there, first of all, I have so many questions about everything you just said, but let's start, like, let's take a step back. So you and your husband decided you wanted to open a bookstore together. I mean, when you got married, was that part of the vows, love, honor, cherish, open a bookstore together? Like how did the timing of the dream come together? I think the biggest thing that like led us on this path, we are both Air Force veterans. And I think we went into the Air Force thinking that that was going to be both of our careers together. And then Drew, at a very young age, faced a cancer diagnosis. And when you face mortality at a young age, I think it makes you really contemplate, how am I spending my time on this earth? And both of us realized we wanted to do something together that would allow us to spend more time together. And we both feel really passionately about literature, about narrative, and how it allows us to be in the world. He's fine. 
but you know, that was like a big shock to our beginning our lives together. And silver lining is, I think it made us stronger. And then tell me about the scam because that I understand did almost put you out of business. It did. Yeah. It was really an unfortunate situation. Basically someone reached out to us pretending to be a legitimate customer was ordering bulk orders of textbooks from us, which was unusual, but they were also using what I presume is probably a fake name that was also a professor name, and we were trying to be helpful, and this was kind of the first time we had encountered this. They were out of state. Basically, they were using stolen credit cards to pay for these books, which I imagine now that they were probably trying to resell for profit for themselves. Yeah. And it was really unfortunate by the time we uncovered the problem and started to peel back the layers, it was over $35,000, which, you know, is a large sum, I think, to anyone, but especially to a small business that was nearly devastating. And the silver lining of that was after we tried to work with our insurance and law enforcement, and it felt like we weren't going to be able to try and resolve the situation in any timely manner with either of those avenues, we turned to the community and my gosh, they lifted us up. It was incredible. We were able to raise $35,000 through a GoFundMe campaign in 10 days with like basically just putting it out in a, a few posts on social media and people just sharing it, showing up, buying books from us in person, online, just an outpouring of love, which I think speaks to one of my favorite things about the city of Detroit is I think everyone who lives in this city has been through some really hard times and because of that, there is this like mindset of mutual aid of like helping people through what's tough. And it's, I think, a really beautiful thing about this place. And if the community hadn't stepped up, that scammer would have put you out of business? Absolutely. Yeah, that would have ended the story. I think part of the reason he's asking for all this information is mm -hmm. he, he wants to help. Like he's going to go out yeah. there and just <laughs> beat him up. He's going to give me the address <laughs> in New York. I'll, I'll hunt him down. You, oh. you. You Thank talk you. on your homepage. I mean, you have a fairly strong, I don't know, mission statement. You talk a lot in your sort of founding principle document and your about us document on your website about representation. So I want to give you a chance to talk about why that's such an important founding principle and how you guys practice it. Yeah, I think it's something that is incredibly foundational, important to our entire team. We are a team of creatives, I think, first and foremost. And my spouse, Drew, he is Filipino-American. Jasmine is a Black woman. We, as collectively as a team, cover this spectrum of intersectionality, of being women, of being queer, of being people of color, of being neurodivergent, of being veterans, of being people who are, deal with disability. And I think because of all those different intersections and where we meet, we recognize that it's so valuable to see yourself reflected in a book, there's this concept of, it's an educational concept of like windows and mirrors. And so, you know, literature being a mirror to see ourselves back and a window to see other experiences and understand each other. It's something that we hear over and over and over again. What makes people a reader is finding themselves in the book. Our very first show with Oprah, she talked about she couldn't find herself in a book forever and ever and ever. She was just looking for brunettes. I mean, the best she could do was to <laughs> find a brunette. And then I know why the cage bird sings changed her whole life because she finally saw herself. So I'm really, that's mm -hmm, great that mm -hmm. you're focusing on that. What, Thank so you. let me, when somebody comes in and says, all right, what are you guys excited about for the fall? What are you putting in their hands in the late summer, early fall these days? I did 
check with people because I was thinking about this. Jasmine, it's been out for a little bit, but Scorpion Fish by Natalie Bacopoulos. That is one by a local author that is relatively new. Jake mentioned Gag Reflex by Elle Nash, which I know is relatively new. I'm really excited about some children's literature. We just had another book in the like Parker Looks Up series, and that's actually illustrated by a local illustrator here in Detroit, B. Jackson. And so that's really lovely. Oh, and then Drew mentioned Crescenciana, which is a really incredible memoir art book combination that was co-created by a grandson and his grandmother. It's just incredible. Aaron Pineda, it is 27th Letter Bookshop on Michigan Avenue in Detroit. I hope people will stop by and I wish you I wish you great success. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us on. This was lovely. The 27th Letter on Michigan Avenue. You're going to want to check them out. I think it speaks so much to what bookstores mean to a community that a community would pull together and support the bookstore in that way. I think back a little bit to our conversation with Cindy at Marketplace Books in Mashpee in Massachusetts, and she talked about the fact that her customers call it my bookstore, that they take an ownership of the bookstore and made it theirs. And I think that's the case for communities that surround independent bookstores. So I think that's a terrific story. All right, so stay tuned. You're going to want to listen to the folks who make this podcast as wonderful as it is. And then you're going to want to stay tuned for Richard Osman's sign-off at the end of the show. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we want to give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. Uh, my coda would be support your local bookstores, support your local businesses. It's a tough time, but if we all pull together, it'll be easier.